Uh, welcome this morning to what is the, if I'm counting right, the 11th message in our series of One Verse Wonders. In this series, as I'm sure you'll probably know by now, we are picking out and digging into a single verse of God's Word each week. And the verse we're going to dig down into this morning is Matthew 16, verse 26. So if you have a Bible, please turn to Matthew 16, track down verse 26. We'll read it in just a few moments. And the title I've given to this morning's message is Saving Our Most Priceless Possession. Saving Our Most Priceless Possession. Now, I know that for many of us, school is almost out and over. Uh, Maybe for some, yesterday was the last day. I know some folks have still got to go in for just a few more days next week. And for others of us, our last day at school was a fair few decades ago. And we're probably not very sad about that. So I hope you'll forgive me this morning when I tell you that we're going to be focusing on a maths question together. Perhaps the most important maths question that has ever been asked. On one level, the answer to this question is very simple. It's not meant to be difficult or particularly taxing to work out. On the other hand, the scale and the magnitude of the answer to this question is truly staggering and sobering. Now, it's not a long, complicated equation. There's not going to be lots of X's and Y's and to the powers of threes. It's just a case of getting the greater and lesser sign around the right way between two opposing things that Jesus is going to talk about. Uh, I don't know if you remember doing these in maths lessons. Uh, They say something like, you know, here's an elephant, here's an ant. Which one's weight is greater than the other? Or here's a penny coin and here's a 50-pound note. Which one's value is greater than the other? And your job was just to get the little arrow around the right way between the two of them. Um, Or to put it in terms of cookery class, if you really hate maths... It's a question of weighing things out on opposite sides of the scales. So maybe you had on one side of the scales was a grain of rice, and on the other side of the scales you had to put a watermelon, and you had to predict which way the scales would tip. That's the kind of question Jesus poses to us in our verse this morning. He places one thing on one side of the scales and something else on the other, and he asks us to consider which is worth more. Which way will the scales tip? Though, as we'll see, it's going to be more a question of which way will the scales break and shatter because one of these things infinitely outweighs the other. So let's let's read Jesus' question together and then we'll seek to answer it together. Matthew 16, verse 26. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Now, there are kind of two questions that Jesus asks here, but we're going to consider Jesus' words under three headings this morning, under three questions. We're going to think first about how great a profit That's profit with an F in the middle, not the profit that speaks from God. How great a profit, how great a loss, and how great an exchange. Those are our three headings for this morning. First of all then, how great a profit. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world? 
Now, we're going to deliberately leave out the soul part of the equation for now. I simply want us to ask the question, if a person could gain the whole world, what would it profit them? What would be the value of gaining all the things of this world, even if we ignore for a moment what Jesus goes on to say about our souls? Is there any profit in gaining the whole world? Let's, let me take you through some examples I've been thinking about this week. Take fame, for example. More people than ever in our culture today are driven by a desire to be famous by whatever means. Uh, and of course, the internet has opened up a platform for pretty much everybody to have a go at doing this, to have a go at being famous. But what do people gain by their fame? Maybe more money. Okay, we'll come to money in a few moments. But apart from that, what else do people gain by achieving fame? It seems pretty clear to me that all they really gain is more pressure, more anxiety, more reasons for depression and unease. How many celebrities end up checking into uh, clinics for addictions and depression far more than the average person that perhaps lives on your street? It seems that most often fame wreaks great havoc in people's lives rather than reaping great rewards. Or take beauty. Whole industries today are built up around this promise of making us look better, transforming our clothes and our hair and our bodies and our muscles and our skin. But to what end? Men and women are more insecure than ever. Boys and girls are more insecure than ever, even less happy and at home in their bodies today than ever before. Added to that, whether you look like me at one end of the spectrum or like Brad Pitt at the other end of the spectrum, we all face an unwinnable fight against aging. No one stays looking young and good forever. We all lose our looks in the end. Or take money. So many people that think that having more money is the key to security and happiness. But just think again about how many rich people in the world are actually more worried and unhappy and on edge. More wealth brings with it more things to be anxious about, not less. As Spurgeon once said, many a man would be happier if he had walked the pavement in rags than if he had rode through the streets in his chariot. And then we add to, the, add to that fact that even the richest people will tell you they never have enough. They always want just a little bit more. And finally, I guess I don't even need to say it, but no one is able to take their wealth with them when they die. Both the rich man and the pauper take, the, take an equal number of possessions with them to the grave. Nothing. The number zero. He who dies with the most toys most certainly doesn't win. Or take power. Down the ages, Certain men have sought to find the greatest profit in power and dominion over other people and nations. Uh, like Alexander the Great, who had one of the largest empires in human history. And it was said that he could travel many thousands of miles without ever coming to the end of his territory. And yet legend tells that when he saw the breadth of his domain, he wept. For there were no more worlds to conquer. He had almost the whole world but what he had simply wasn't enough. He had only become more empty. Or take ambition and career success. 
How many people work 60-hour weeks throughout all of their lives to try and become the CEO of a top company and then hold on to that position only to find that about a year after retirement, nobody in the office remembers who they were or what they ever achieved or take experience and pleasure. Many people make life about fulfilling and ticking off their bucket list about visiting everywhere and experiencing everything, as if at the end of life, the ability to say, oh, I tried it all and I did it all and I enjoyed it all, will really give us any genuine comfort when it comes time for us to die. Just remember Solomon, who went in pursuit of every delight, of every sensual pleasure, of every worldly treasure, he literally tried it all, What was his verdict? Ecclesiastes 2 verse 11, Behold, all was vanity and meaningless, a striving after wind. As someone once said, I like this, this world is like a boy's butterfly. It's pretty sport to chase it, but bruise its wings by an over-earnest grasp and and it is nothing but a disappointment. Which brings us back to Jesus' original question, What profit is there in gaining the whole world? The answer is very little while we've got it and ultimately nothing in the end when we inevitably lose it. There is no lasting profit or advantage in gaining the whole world or even just a little slice of it. The world simply cannot, whether in part or whole, deliver the happiness and the joy that every human heart has been wired by God to desire and only truly find in God and God alone. As Augustine once famously said, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in you. And yet, how many people are there in the world, and maybe even someone in this room today, who are so caught up in pursuing worldly gain that we're, we're too preoccupied to really listen to Jesus and respond to his life-giving, life-changing invitation. Just like the men who were invited to the king's wedding banquet in Matthew 22, many people turn down that invitation because they're too busy working in their fields or on their businesses to respond to the greatest invitation they could ever hope to receive. Or like the rich young ruler in Mark chapter 10, some people even make some inquiring steps towards Jesus. They ask the question, what do do I need to do? Where do I find eternal life? But ultimately they go away empty-handed and sorrowful because they're unwilling to let go of this world's treasures in order to receive him. The empty promises of this world keep so many people from hearing and responding to Christ's invitation. And in the end, those empty promises lead to the most devastating loss of all. And it's that loss that we come to now in the second point here this morning. What will it profit a man, Jesus asks, if he forfeits his soul? How great a loss. That's our second heading this morning. How great a loss is it to lose your own soul? Uh, And to answer this question, let me ask another question. What is a soul? What is a soul? 
Well, our soul is our very life. It's our inner man. Our soul is who we are. Because it's not the breath in our lungs or the blood pumping through our veins or the, impulse, uh, the, the electrical impulses firing around in our brains that make us truly who we are as human beings. No, what makes us truly ourselves is our soul. Your soul is the real you. You don't so much have a soul, you are a soul. We are all in this room today living souls. And your soul is also the part of you that will go on living after your body has died. Once made, the human soul is immortal because God made every human soul to live forever. So just think about this for a moment. Every single person sat in this room, the people sitting right next to you, has an immortal soul, a soul that will outlive the sun and the moon and the earth And the universe itself, a soul that will live on into eternity, our souls cannot die, but they can be, we can be, irretrievably forfeited and lost. Okay, let's ask a second question then about our souls. How valuable is my soul? And the answer is, our souls are without question the most valuable and precious things in all the world made in the image of God to live forever. God's word repeatedly tells us of the value of the human soul. It tells us that our souls are worth more than all earthly riches, as we've already been seeing this morning. It tells us that even the whole world, if you could gain it, would not be a worthy price for the priceless jewel that is your soul. What shall a man give in return for his soul, says Jesus, There is literally nothing you could give to match its worth, even if you possessed the riches of 10,000 worlds. Put 10,000 worlds on one side of the scales and then put a single human soul on the other side of the scales and the value of that soul will cause a mighty crash on those scales. Our souls are worth more than all earthly riches. The Bible also tells us our souls are worth more than all earthly security. Remember the parable that uh, Jesus told of the rich man who had a plentiful crop? Luke 12, verse 17, he he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I, I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, You have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? This man, God tells us, was a fool. To be more concerned about securing his worldly possessions, more concerned about his retirement fund than about securing his own soul. It's madness, because when it came time for him to die, not only did he lose all of those worldly possessions, but he also forfeited his own soul. The Bible also tells us that our souls are worth more than our physical well-being. Just think for a moment how passionately we take precautions against those who could harm our physical bodies. How concerned we are for our health and physical well-being. Uh, we, we try to eat healthy. 
We exercise. We go for medical checkups. We lock our doors at night. It's not unwise to do these things at all. But what does Jesus say in Matthew 10, verse 28? He says, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. It's quite a stunning statement that he makes. It's as if Jesus is saying, don't fear heart disease. Don't fear cancer. Don't fear murderers and robbers in the street. Why? Because the worst they can do is kill your body. They can't touch the infinitely more valuable part of you. And so rather, Jesus continues, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Fear God, says Jesus, who in his justice could one day condemn you, body and soul, to hell. Do you see the value of your soul? Let's ask another question. How great a loss would it be to lose your soul? The answer is devastating, unimaginable loss. The loss of your soul is the heaviest and most devastating loss you could ever suffer. Loss of reputation, loss of wealth, loss of comfort, loss of health are truly nothing when weighed in the balance against the tragedy of losing your own soul. Because to lose your soul is to be forever lost yourself. And not in such a way, too, that you are simply annihilated. You are no more. No, to forfeit your soul is to lose the final end for which your soul was created. It is to be cut off finally and forever from God and from his loving kindness. It is to be consigned eternally to hell, where there is unending torment, the Bible tells us, for those who are there over what they neglected and forfeited when they were still here. J.C. Ryle says of the soul, once lost, it is lost forever. Lost property may be recovered in this world. The loss of health and character are not always beyond repair. But no man who has once drawn his last breath can ever retrieve his lost soul. Scripture reveals to us no purgatory beyond the grave. Scripture teaches us that once lost, we are lost forever. Truly, a man will find that there is nothing he can give to buy back and redeem his soul. Now, I know that we don't like to think about this, but Jesus wants us to think about this because he loves us and he doesn't want us to forfeit our souls forever. But oh, how easily people can think they can hide from this and ignore this. We're all prone, I think, to hiding when, when we owe great debts. Maybe we take out a big loan with the bank or we rack up a big overdraft. We get ourselves to a place where we owe lots of money. Yet we can find ourselves, I wonder if you can relate to this, looking at our current account or perhaps looking in our wallet or purse, seeing there's positive money there. There's a £10 note or 100 or even a 1000 And thinking to ourselves, yes, there it is. I've got plenty of money still to spend. There's nothing for me to worry about. Ignoring all the time that just across there in some other nearby account or some unopened bill, we do in fact owe far more money than we've got and that we could pay. And we are in fact in the greatest possible debt. Perhaps many of us relate to our finances like this. But how many more people live their whole lives like this with regards to God and their soul? 
ignoring and hiding from the fact that their soul is forfeit, that their very life will soon be lost in hell forever. Yet they look on at their small amount of worldly riches, a nice home, a respectable job, relatively good health, at least for now, and they tell themselves, I'm doing okay. I'm in the black. I don't owe anything. I'm bound to come out all right in the end. But the devastating truth is they won't. You won't. Not if you forfeit your own soul. And most of us too, I'm sure, are familiar with that, that horrible sinking feeling that, uh, that, that comes when we make a regrettable sale or purchase. You know, either you sell something and then you wish you hadn't, or you give up your hard-earned money for an item that is utterly disappointing when it comes. We've all made foolish purchases and felt our hearts sink once we realized our folly and our wastefulness. But that sinking regret is as nothing compared to the final regret a person will feel when they stand before God on the day of judgment and realize that giving away their soul in order to gain the world was the most foolish and regrettable purchase they've ever made. And when they realize that the window of opportunity has ended to reverse the decisions they have made. Amazon might take back returns that we don't want any longer, but there's no buying your soul back once it's forfeited and gone. How utterly devastating and terrible will be the regret of so many people on that day. But here's something that brings it even closer to home for us this morning. Left to ourselves, our souls are already forfeit. Because of our sin, we deserve judgment. And it's only a matter of time before God says to an unsaved sinner, you fool, this night your soul is required of you. And what now will become of you in hell? Can anything then be done for us? Can anything be done for our souls? How great a price must be paid in order to redeem, while there's still time, our irreplaceable, everlasting souls? That is the final question that Jesus' words in, uh, in, in verse 26 answer for us this morning. We've seen how great a profit is it to gain the whole world. Zero profit. We've seen how great a loss to forfeit our souls. Devastating loss. Finally then, how great an exchange. How great an exchange is required to save a person's soul. Jesus says, what shall a man give in return for his soul? Here's why this question is so important. Because we are still alive. No one here this morning has lost their soul yet. We're still alive. There's still hope. Our sin has placed us in the greatest possible debt. But God hasn't yet exacted from us the price of our rebellion. So what can we do? What can a man now give in return for his soul? What can a man, what can a woman give to rescue their soul before it is too late? And the answer, of course, is there is nothing we can give. Nothing we can do to save ourselves, to save our souls. What can you give to purchase something that is more costly and valuable than any other treasure? All the riches in all the world would not be enough to redeem us. 
And neither are all the good works and noble deeds of all mankind enough to redeem us either. There is nothing we can give to wipe away a single sin and rescue our souls from eternal loss. There is nothing we can give. But there is something God can give. There is nothing we can exchange, but there is something God can exchange. There is a price that God could pay that would be sufficient to redeem our immortal souls. There is something God can give in return for your soul. There is a way for you and I to be ransomed, as the Apostle Peter writes, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. My friends, God so loved the world that he gave his only son, gave him up to die on a cross, to die in the place of sinful souls so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Whoever you are, however terrible your sins might be, and the fact is all our sin is terrible, God doesn't want you to perish. He wants to save your soul forever. And oh, how great a price he has already paid to save souls. The infinitely costly sacrifice of his son. So that all that remains for you to save your soul is to respond to his outstretched arms of invitation. It's an invitation that is given again and again and again throughout the pages of the New Testament. It's given so many times because God doesn't want anyone to perish. The invitation is everywhere. But this morning, we only have to cast our eyes back a few verses up the page to hear his invitation again. Here is what Christ says to you and I today. Matthew 16, verses 24 and 25. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Now the word translated life here is the very same word for soul. Jesus is talking about the very same thing here. And he's telling us the way to save our souls. Here's what Jesus is saying. That if you want to keep your present way of life, to cling on to living a godless, self-focused life, just treasuring this present world, living for yourself and not for the God who made you, if you want to do that, you will ultimately lose your life and forfeit your soul forever you will not find eternal life with God. But if you are willing to give up your present life of rebellion against God, if you are willing to give up your life to Christ, to follow him from this day forward, if you've never done this before, then you will find eternal life and an everlasting relationship with God. You have to surrender yourself, your life, your soul to Jesus in order to save it. Now that can seem counterintuitive at first, I know. To give up your life, to entrust your life to someone else in order to save it and find it. But let me tell you, this is where true life really begins. 
Because what Christ is actually offering us here in these two verses this morning is himself forever. He's already given himself up for us on the cross. Now he offers himself to us that we might know him and enjoy him forever. And that is a treasure that far surpasses all earthly riches and pleasures. Again, as Augustine said, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in you. And Jesus is saying, yes, that's right. So incline your ear to me and follow me, and you will find rest for your souls. For, as he once told Martha, as she stood by the graveside of her brother, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this, he says to her. Do you believe this? That's his question to you and I this morning. Will we recognize the infinite value of our souls? Will you accept that it is forfeit because of your sin? Will you respond to his invitation to die to yourself and follow him? Will you cast your soul on Jesus that your soul may live? Jesus invites you to turn and trust in him this morning if you've never done so before. But what about for those of us who are already believers, already his followers here this morning? What is there here for us? Well, let me say simply this. Christian, your soul has been saved. Your most priceless possession is not lost, but is saved forever because of Jesus. What a joy this is. What a joy Just imagine if your house was burning down and within it you knew there was one priceless possession above all else. What joy would you feel when a rescuer came forth from the flames carrying that one possession of incomparable worth? But Christ has come forth from the flames carrying your most priceless possession. He has come forth from the flames carrying you and me and all who have put their trust in him. He has borne our souls to safety, even though he himself was for a time burnt and consumed by the flames. All hail Jesus, the hero and rescuer of our souls. No wonder the Bible says, praise his name forever, hallelujah. No matter what else in this life we might lack, our souls have been saved by Christ. Our souls have been saved for Christ. Our souls have been saved to be with Christ forevermore. Let us then treasure Christ with all our hearts. Let us cling to him with hands that aren't full, trying to cram themselves full of earthly treasures. And let's rest assured that in him our souls are forever secure. Because we have returned to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. Let me finish with these words from 1 Peter 1, verses 8 and 9. Peter says, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your 
souls. Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending Christ to be the shepherd and overseer and rescuer of our souls. We thank you that through the unfathomable cost of his death on the cross, you have purchased and redeemed the very souls that we had forfeited by our sin. Please, Lord, help us to love Christ more deeply for all that he is to us and all that he has done for us. Please deepen our confidence and our assurance that with him our souls are forever secure. And Lord, we pray together as a church, please bring to saving faith all those who arrived here this morning or went online this morning without a saviour for their souls. Lord, would you lead them to faith and save them today? In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.